This is Hacker Public Radio, episode 3732, for Tuesday, the 22nd of November 2022. Today's show is entitled, My Experience Owning an Atari Jaguar. It is hosted by Mode 7 and is about 33 minutes long. It carries a clean flag. The summary is I talk about my experience with the Atari Jaguar and Jaguar CD. Ni hao. Hello, Hacker Public Radio. This is Mode 7. Recording a really quick show. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the Atari Jaguar. I really want to do a technical episode. I'm going to need some preparation and reference material for that, so I'm not going to do that right now, but I'm driving, and I thought that because the queue is low, there's a call for shows, and I've been so informed that I officially owe Ken Fallon an episode. I'm going to go ahead and do a quick one, uh, something I can talk about without reference, and uh, a lot of preparation is my experience with the Atari Jaguar, and it's a game system that I've owned since about 1996 or 1997. Um, you may or may not know very much about it. If you're not into video games at all, you may know nothing about it. If you're into any kind of retro games or you were into games during the 90s, you probably know something about it. And there's a lot of, rep- uh, you know, there's a lot of reference to it on YouTube in different scenarios where people are talking about how bad it is. <laughs> it's definitely been the joke of uh, a lot of people. And then uh, it makes a lot of those, I don't think you see them as much anymore, but for a while everybody was doing top 10 worst this, top 10 worst that of video games. Top 10 worst lists oftentimes included Atari Jaguar stuff. I don't know why, but I'm going to talk about my experience with the system. It was a good experience. I generally like the system quite a bit. I still have my system, and I've had it... I've got the box. I bought it new. I've got the, Jag- the Jaguar CD unit that goes with it. And I've got one controller. It's the original controller that came with the system. I've got a composite cable. So it's instead of using the RF converter, it's using composite video. Not the most amazing picture in the world, but not that bad. Um, so, yeah, I'm just going to kind of go into some of the things I enjoy about it or like about it, some things I dislike about it. And uh, maybe a few things off to the side here and there. So it's a bit of a ramble. I'm good at rambling. Uh, So let's start off with the system, the hardware, what comes in the box. Um, It came with a pack-in game called Cybermorph. It's a cartridge-based system, so this is a cartridge game. And because it is a cartridge game, it does have limited storage capacity. It, there's not a the, the system has capability for audio qual or excuse me CD quality audio. However, with limited storage, you don't always get that sort of audio. Usually, they are using the storage space for actual gameplay and graphics and so, so on. So, sound capabilities are there, but cartridge limitations exist. Um, so, let me start. I'll talk about the controller for a minute. The controller is a point of much controversy. Many people have complained that the controller is uncomfortable, and they also complain about the layout of the controller in terms of the the buttons that are available. I have personally never had a problem with the controller being uncomfortable, and I've played that system from the time I was a teenager on to now. So, for me, it's not a problem. I will 
I always enjoy using the controller. Um, and I never even thought about whether it was comfortable or uncomfortable. So it was kind of just like a transparent interface to manipulating what was going on on the screen. I never even thought twice about it until I heard somebody complain about how bad the controller was. I was a little confused, but whatever, to each their own. Um, the layout is not much different from a Mega Drive controller or Sega Genesis. And it's, so it's got three face buttons. It's got a directional pad and it's got a start button, but it also has an option button. So it does have what it would, I would think would be equivalent to like a select button on some of the older Nintendo systems. Um, and then of course the big controversial addition to that controller was the number pad, which is basically like a full number keypad beneath the the rest of the controller, like underneath it. It's fully accessible with your thumbs, either thumb. I don't really ever have a problem using it. I think it's cool in a lot of ways. It's very functional. Um, a lot of the games would actually include a plastic overlay to put on the, on the number pad. What it would do is it would map different functions in the game to a number. So in Doom, for example, the weapons were each mapped to a number. It has its uses. I think it's not a bad design. It's not necessarily something every system should have adopted. Obviously, it's limited as well, but I didn't think it was a problem. Um, I really like the controller. They did do a second version of the controller called the Pro Controller, and that had three additional face buttons as well as shoulder buttons. Um, the additional buttons on this Pro Controller were actually mapped to the same functions as some of the uh, number pad buttons. So if you didn't have a Pro Controller, you could actually access the same functions through the number pad. Uh, some games were designed with the Pro Controller in mind, and so I think it was it was definitely limited, and I think it was like just a few games, like fighting games were some of the ones that come to mind. Um, and so if you didn't have a Pro Controller, you could still play the game and not be losing any of those button functions. So um, kind of a cool idea, though, to maintain that backwards compatibility with the older controller by just mapping it to those buttons. I think that was smart. A lot of things Atari did with the Jaguar were very creative and intelligent. Uh, one of the things that I remember very first that just, I, I mean, I was younger and it probably wasn't as big of a deal as it seemed to be, but like there's no reset button on the console. And so if you want to reset your game, you just push two buttons on the controller simultaneously. I think it was the uh, asterisk and the uh, pound sign. You push those simultaneously, and it does a soft reset on your game. And I thought that was so smart, because how many times do you, back in the day, have to get up out of your chair or whatever you're sitting on, walk over to the console, and push the reset button? And in this case, you don't have to do that. So that was kind of a cool, innovative feature that Atari did. Um, they had two controller ports on the system itself. On the back end of the controller, there was an AV output, and then there was um, there was like a serial communications port, I think it was, um, and it communicated directly to one of the co-processors in the Jaguar. It was the DSP, the sound processor. So um, that was typically designed to be used for like communications. So the modem uh, that. It wasn't a modem. It was like a Jaguar, Jaguar uh, LAN adapter kind of thing. 
Um, it would allow you to link two Jaguars together and communicate. Doom utilized it, but it was so buggy, I don't think it was really that playable. Um, I did have uh, one of those little communication adapters, and a friend of mine actually did too, but we could never get Doom to link up. I don't know if we were doing something wrong or, or what the story was, but we just couldn't get it to work. Um, and I might even have been using like the wrong kind of cable. But um, So anyway, that's on the back side. And then, of course, there's the cartridge port. Now, you can kind of see on the shell of the Jaguar, and you'll want to look up images. I'm not going to do any show notes on this, but you can look up images of the Jaguar, and you can kind of see it's got, like, a little cutout on the top where um, what eventually was sold was a CD add-on, and that's it's, it would sit right on top of that cutout, and it would uh, connect into the cartridge slot. And it had a pass-through cartridge so that... If you bought the CD unit, you could still play your original cartridges and, and by plugging them into the CD unit. Um, and then if you, you know, of course, if you wanted to play a CD game, you just pop a disc in there and turn it on. So it was pretty cool um, in that sense that it didn't limit your functionality by putting the CD add-on on top of the system. Um, so the cartridge-based games, they were usually like... You know, one meg, two meg, four meg games. I think they went up to six meg cartridges. Um, but Atari was kind of in control of dictating that to some of the developers based on like the cost of manufacturing. And they didn't always have six. The in fact, the smaller storage was always preferred by Atari because you can make more money that way, and not have to charge as much for the cartridge. Um, but they were still able to put some pretty impressive games on the system. Um, without going into too many of the technical details, just a kind of uh, overview of it, it was designed to do both 3D and 2D games. Um, 3D was capable, uh, you know, it was capable of 3D, but it actually was much more, uh, it was much better at two-dimensional games. Um, really, if you compare it to like the Mega Drive or the Super Nintendo, it was... It was just light years ahead. It could do things that those two systems couldn't do. Uh, the, they did. They did have some capabilities to do some of the stuff the Jaguar did, but oftentimes they had to have like add-on chips on the cartridge. So rather than just being able to do it with the chipset that came in the system, they would put stuff like the Super FX chip or you know other helper chips into the cartridge to do those types of effects. But the Jaguar could do it on its own, no additional chips scaling and rotation and all sorts of cool uh, things that would modify tiles or sprites. And so it could do a lot of neat stuff. 2D was still very much a core part of gaming at the time, but 3D is where everybody was kind of looking at. You know, everybody was really excited for 3D games. So the unfortunate thing is they didn't lean heavily enough on the Jaguar's 2D capabilities and make really impressive 2D games as much as they could have. They tried too hard to put 3D games in the, in the market that weren't really games so much as tech demos in a lot of cases. But um, but anyway, so the Jaguar, just briefly, it does have uh, five processors housed within three different chips, and one of the processors is the Motorola 68000. It was a very common processor at the time. It was pretty cheap to make, to uh, include in, a, in the system, so that was one of the decisions, uh, or one of the factors that played into the decision to include in the system. The other reason cited is that the uh, the folks at Atari wanted to include something that was 
familiar to the developers of video games, so the Mega Drive actually, the core processor was a 68,000. So the thought on that was, well, people can move over from doing game development on systems like the Mega Drive. Um, they're, they're already going to know one of the processors because the, the real problem was that they were worried that a system with five processors and uh, the majority of which were custom chips that were not, you know, they, you couldn't just go buy them off the shelf and put them in your, in your console. They were, uh, they had to be programmed in assembly, uh, and they were afraid that developers wouldn't be able to do it or wouldn't be, uh, it wouldn't be a quick enough thing for them to learn to start producing games real fast. So they thought, we'll include the 68,000 in there. They can go ahead and learn and uh, learn the system using that, and then as they get more comfortable with the system, hopefully they'll start using the the custom risk chips a little bit better. That, that really didn't work that well. Uh, they didn't really have that many developers to begin with, and the people that stuck around kind of did eventually learn to use the other chips. But the, the Motorola chip really created a lot of technical problems for the system. Um, that, that's something I'll probably talk more about. In when I do my next episode about the technical details of the Jaguar. Uh, suffice it to say, the system did have a lot of ports that came on uh, came on the scene that were just ports of Mega Drive games or you know Amiga games or stuff like that. They weren't graphically as impressive as you wanted to see coming from a system that claimed it was next-gen 64-bit. It, it did have capabilities that exceeded what you would see on the Super Nintendo and Genesis. Uh, a lot of times they just weren't utilized, so kind of a shame. Um, but they did have a lot of games that utilized it. They did have a lot of games that pushed the system to you know, doing 3D stuff. And that was really cool, and it also had the capability to do pretty close to photorealistic graphics in-game. So, whereas games on other systems may have been pre-rendered, they usually had their color palette limited down or something else to make it work on the system, whereas the Jaguar could actually handle pretty much what was rendered. So, if they were to do something like that, it would look pretty good. But let's see, a good game I would use as an example for that system would be uh, Tempest 2000. It's a really, really good game. It's a, originally an Atari game. It was an Atari arcade game that had a vector display, it had vector graphics, and the idea behind the game was that you were sitting atop uh, like a web or a tunnel, and monsters were coming at you from the other end of that tunnel, and you had to shoot them before they reached you. And so, uh, as Atari was always good at, simple to learn, hard to uh, master, and so this game really fit that. The update was done by Jeff Minter of Lomasoft. And he did a fantastic job moving this game forward into what, at the time, was current generation uh, game systems, and really utilizing some of the capabilities of the Jaguar. It used polygon render, uh, you know, fully rendered polygons and things like that in real time, and uh, it ran pretty smooth. Uh, by today's standards, it's definitely not smooth. But at the time when we were all used to seeing really choppy 3D, uh, really limited choppy 3D, but that. This was a game that really showcased smooth-running 3D graphics, and it was a lot of fun to play. It really kept the spirit of the original, but extended it with additional monsters and challenges. So I really enjoyed that game back 
when it was when I first got it in the '90s. But I I even play it today. I really still enjoy it. And there are different iterations of that game that have come along. Um, I think Tempest Four Thousand has been released on like PlayStation, Xbox, Switch, um, maybe Steam. I'm not sure, but. Um, so if you're interested in kind of seeing what Tempest is, you know, you could check those out. I'm not sure how close they really kept it to the Tempest 2000 gameplay. I've not played it yet myself, but the Jaguar version was really fun. It did get ported to the Saturn and the PlayStation, but uh, with different results. So obviously different strengths and weaknesses of those systems, and so you got just kind of a different experience, but... For somebody who's a fan of the Jaguar, who owns the Jaguar, and had played that game originally on the Jaguar, I don't really think there's... You just really don't replace that experience um, with the ones on the other two systems. It's just not the same. So that's a fantastic game. If you get a chance to play a Jaguar, that's one you really want to play. Uh, another game that... Actually, two games, I will say, are worth checking out. Wolfenstein 3D... Uh, was the first time I ever played Wolfenstein was on the Jaguar. And I think, at least in my experience, it's my favorite version. Uh, but I think it's probably one of the better looking versions from the time. The, they had upped the resolution of the graphics. The frame rate was just blinding fast. It, the Jaguar handled the Wolfenstein engine extremely well. No problems with it. Um, and it got a lot of praise from the guys at id software and how it handled wolfenstein and of course that led to the development of doom being uh being ported to the jaguar and uh that was a little bit tougher to do doom was more complex and at the time if for reference uh you had to have a pretty high-end computer at the time to play doom if you did not have a high enough uh, high-end enough computer you weren't going to play it really easily wasn't going to run very well. The Jaguar ran that game pretty well. It didn't have the in-game music. Uh, it wasn't really a limitation of the system as much as just, I don't think it was a feature that got finished before they shipped, but um, John Carmack worked on that game himself and uh, still said, you know, the Jaguar is a pretty good system. He did have some suggestions that would have helped the Jaguar probably handle 3D graphics better. But overall, he really liked... It seems like he really liked the system based on his comments. And he actually... A uh, little side note, he actually referenced the Jaguar when he was talking about the complexities of programming games for the PlayStation 3 um, with the multiple cell... You know, just multiple processor cores and stuff. He was kind of talking about some of the same uh, technical problems you run into when you're dealing with the multiple processor system and how he had run into it with the Jaguar. And I I thought that was really cool that he would like correlate those two together, PlayStation 3 and the Atari Jaguar, saying how ahead of its time the Jaguar was trying to do things that only years and years later the PlayStation was trying to do with the PlayStation 3. So um, I probably should find those articles. Those would be uh, good to reference in a show, probably the technical show when I talk more about the chips. Um, so back on main discussion here, uh, the experience I had with the system. So Tempest 2000 was my favorite game, I think. Uh, a couple of my other favorites beyond Doom and Wolfenstein would be Iron Soldier and Alien vs. Predator. Alien vs. Predator was the game everybody knew about, aside from 
maybe Tempest 2000, but definitely Alien vs. Predator because it was based on well-known films, and it was a 3D game. It wasn't polygonal, but it did have... Uh, it was like Doom. It was kind of a uh, raycast engine, so... It was... Uh, everybody was waiting for it. It had very... Uh, a, almost photorealistic color space, so it looked really good. It didn't run as good as everyone had hoped, but for the time, it was acceptable, and it was a very fun game. And uh, I, I don't know that it... I'm not sure the gameplay quite holds up to what people expect out of games today. I think it's pretty easy to play it for a little while and go, oh, I'm bored. Uh, I think I'm going to go and play something else. But if you do give it the time and you really kind of get into the game, it is a fun game on its own uh, for what it is. It's not terrible. It's It's got a lot of uh, exploration and... Uh, things like that, and it can be slow, but I think they were trying to do that to set the, uh, kind of give the game a little bit of atmosphere and stuff like that, so, but when it was released, it was ahead of its time, and, and nothing else on the market really could do that right then. I think it was released slightly before the PlayStation and Saturn came out, so it was a showcase game for the Jaguar. And I always remember people would, if, when they found out I had a Jaguar, they would ask if I had Alien vs. Predator, because everybody wanted to try it, and nobody had a Jaguar. So um, so there were a number of good games like that. Those were some of the, uh, I think, the gems of the system. There were a lot of games that were, weren't bad games, but they just, in my opinion, if you had a Jaguar, you could get them so that you had more games to play if you didn't have a Jaguar, they weren't going to convince you to run out and buy one uh, because they were available on other systems and the Jaguar just wasn't bringing much to the table in terms of adding extra features to those games, so they were just kind of ports. Again, it, it did have the Motorola 68000 and that did it did lend itself well to people porting games over from some of the other popular uh, computer systems at the time. So the, the other thing about the Jaguar, I do have the CD add-on, and it still works. Uh, and there are a handful of games that were released for that. I think 13 games released for the Jaguar CD. Not a lot of good ones, in my opinion. Um, it, if you bought the CD unit, you got five bundle discs. Um, I want to say there was a demo of the game Mist. There was a Tempest 2000 audio soundtrack, which included... Uh, techno music for Tempest. Um, there were like a number of tracks that they couldn't put on the game cartridge and uh, actually uh, worth mentioning is that they did have two techno tracks on the Tempest cartridge that would play when you were playing the game and it matches the sound there. The game played very, very well. Uh, very, very cool soundtrack. Uh, let's see, there was a game called Blue Lightning which was kind of like Afterburner, but like more photorealistic graphics. And they were, I would say, like, I, I guess you'd compare it to other super scalar games that like Sega used to do in the arcade. So it wasn't, it wasn't really that fun of a game, to be honest. It was kind of a cool tech demo. And then uh, there was a game called VidGrid, which would have a bunch of music videos. I remember Metallica and Soundgarden and Guns N' Roses uh, a few others I cannot recall 
they had music videos on there, so you it would split the music video up into a grid and mix up all the pieces, like one of those sliding puzzles. Um, and then you had to put the pieces back in order while the music video was playing, and the goal was to do that before the music video finished. And you could get to the point where you did pretty well with a little bit of practice. Some videos were easier than others. But then, of course, the fun of it was to see how fast you could do it and just keep beating your score. And then, uh, see, the other game that came along with that would have been... No, that might have been all the pack-in games with the CD unit. Um, but of the CD games, I think my favorite game was a game called Hover Strike. And it was fully 3D. It had texture mapping. It had... Um, you know, had lighting effects, which were actually really cool. Uh, the Jaguars' strengths were not in texture mapping or lighting effects. So it was kind of cool to see that come along, especially that was around the time the PlayStation was gaining traction. And to see something like, you know, kind of nearing what some of the early PlayStation games looked like on the Jaguar CD was pretty neat. And for anybody who owned a Jaguar, it was one of those games you could pull out and show your friends just to say, see, you know, my system can do this too. Uh, but gameplay-wise, I thought it was a very fun game. A lot of people didn't like it. So the premise is that you're piloting a hovercraft tank. And so you're not, you're, your hovercraft obviously isn't making any contact with the ground. There's no friction involved there except with the ground. So you're going to kind of glide whatever direction you were moving and you have to do something to kind of stop yourself or move yourself the other direction and that physics mechanic a lot of people didn't like i thought it was fun i thought it was fantastic because no other games have been doing that so i thought it was a fun experience and it was definitely worth playing so i i finished that game and i really enjoyed it um they did do a cartridge version of it, and I think the cartridge version was released first. The cartridge version was not well-liked. It had a lot of uh, kind of gameplay flaws. From my understanding, the gameplay flaws that everybody didn't like were fixed in the CD version. And so, uh, you know, I didn't experience those complaints. Everybody else must have. And I played the CD version. Uh, there were a lot of really bad CD games. Uh, they tried to do a port of Primal Rage, and I really don't know what went wrong with that port, if it was just an inexperienced dev team. I don't really know what happened, but it wasn't very good. The sprites were like half the size of the arcade sprites. It looked better than the 16-bit systems, but it wasn't really what you would have expected from the Jaguar. I, I would expect that if somebody were to go back and try to recreate that today with uh, some extra time and effort and uh, trying to apply what people have learned since the Jaguar's been released and, and kind of fallen by the wayside, I would bet they could probably recreate the arcade version, most likely. At least pretty close. So... Uh, let's see. Um, one of the games I didn't talk about, which I didn't actually own early on, but I've played recently, was NBA Jam. And if you were playing games in the 90s and you haven't heard of NBA Jam, I don't know where you were, but it was pretty popular. Even if you didn't like basketball, you could have a pretty good time with this game because it was more of an arcade-style game than a basketball simulation. But it did release on just about every platform you can imagine. I think the Game Boy saw a release, Game Gear, every other system I can think of. And the uh, very 
fascinating thing about the Jaguar version is it was done by High Voltage Software. Um, kind of look into those guys. They started doing development on the Jaguar, I think. Um, and since then, they've done some interesting stuff and some not so interesting stuff, but they've still been around. Um, so anyway, High Voltage Software did this port of NBA Jam. And if you look at all the different versions, Saturn, PlayStation, whatever you want, the Jaguar version is the better version. It's got the better graphics. It's got good sound. It's just a better version. And it's not just me saying that. I mean, a lot of people who are giving an honest comparison agree, like, this is this is a good version. So um, definitely worth looking at that one if you get the chance to play Jaguar. Um, Defender 2000, another game I didn't have back in the day, but I have acquired recently. And that's really fun. That's another Jeff Minter game. That one didn't get quite the uh, positive attention that Tempest 2000 got, but in terms of being a good Defender game, I quite enjoyed it. Um, the, the complaints I mostly hear that like you, 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 this gameplay moves too fast, you can't really see what's going on on the screen without using the, uh, uh, the panoramic viewpoint from the top of the radar thing, whatever it's called. Um, if you've never played Defender, you have no idea what I'm talking about. If you've played Defender, you might have some clue of what I'm rambling about. But anyway, I thought it was a fun game. I think I've had a really good time playing that game. Um, and then there have been, uh, you know, just to kind of wrap things up, there have been a number of homebrew games released for this system since its demise. And um, a very fascinating fact about the system is that Atari, when they stopped manufacturing it, they left the games market, they more or less just said, anybody who wants to develop games for the Jaguar can. And they, they didn't want to, basically they just said it's an open system, anybody can do it. They didn't actually provide the encryption keys required to encrypt the, the games and make them run on the system. And I can't remember why that was. Apparently they were lost, the discs were lost or something, but those were found and, and now everybody's got the encryption, Every, anybody can produce a game that will run on the Jaguar, so it's pretty cool. There are a lot of really good games that have been released for the Jaguar since then. Um, it's pretty ambitious titles. One of the, uh, I would say one of the areas where more modern productions are kind of not touching would be 3D. Um, doing 3D on the Jaguar just doesn't seem to a lot of people want it. A lot of developers don't want to do it. They'd much rather leverage the, the 2D power of the Jaguar and make games that run at a high frame rate and look really nice, rather than produce like uh, low polygon count, no texture mapped 3D games that people are going to dislike um, and have a hard time playing. So, but there is an active Jaguar development community, uh, active collectors community. Uh, for a while, the you could buy this stuff from almost nothing online like on eBay and stuff and you know in recent years uh, kind of with the popularity of YouTube videos talking about the Jaguar those prices along with other collecting uh, game collectors items have just gone out like crazy so you know there's there's some money tied up in collecting for the Jaguar nowadays one of the best things I think I've probably bought for the Jaguar would be the Jaguar game drive, which allows you to load ROMs onto it, kind of like an EverDrive or something like that for the N64. You can load games onto an SD card or ROMs onto an SD card and just play them right off the SD card. Um, I find that to be so 
uh, so valuable because like a lot of those games just weren't that great, but they're going for a lot of money on eBay right now, and I really have no interest in spending sixty dollars on a game that is mediocre at best uh, just to try it out or just to complete a collection. If it's a game I want to, you know, play once in a while or something like that, I can just put it on the game drive, and it's it's much better. Um, so anyway, that's that's my Jaguar gaming experience, and uh, being a longtime owner of the Jaguar, I'm you know I can answer questions people have on it if they've never played it. And uh, sorry for all the road noise; it's very bad. Um, so, you know, I, I want to do this technical episode talking more about the processors and uh, how they were programmed. And I'm not a developer on the Jaguar, but I do want to, like, I've, I've read the, the developer manual multiple times uh, because I just think that it's so cool to read how these machines work. Um, and I don't even understand them at the level some people do. I kind of have a very basic understanding of it, but it still, to me, is very fascinating. Um, so I'm going to do an episode talking very specifically about that kind of stuff. But, it, you know, in the meantime, if anybody kind of has questions about Jaguar-related stuff, like, I'd be happy to talk about it. There are definitely people who know more about it than I do, but it's a very fun system for me. Um, and I guess with that, I'm going to sign off. Uh, so, GG, uh, thank you, Packer Public Radio, and Zaijian, uh, goodbye. been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. Today's show was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hosting for HBR has been kindly provided by anhonesthost.com, the Internet Archive and rsync.net. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License.